This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> Hello. And welcome back to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Tom Zayas, joined as always by Tim, a.k.a. Cranges with Basketball. Shouts to you, Tim, for holding it down solo pod last time. I was unable to make the pod, but you did a great job breaking down some of the adjustments that we could see the Lakers make. And they ended up pulling out a very close, hard-fought game, uh, 114-108 in Game 4 of the Western Conference Finals. So let's dive in a little bit quickly here to some of the things you talked about adjusting to in the last pod and just get some of your general takeaways from from the game four victory sure yeah and and hey no problem i was able to hold down the fort while you uh took those notes flew down to orlando <laughs> handed them to frank vogel and, and and we saw the lakers use some of them so it was it was a uh st- still definitely a bumpy road wasn't an easy win uh, the lakers were definitely tested we saw certain guys really step up but we saw some of the rotational adjustments that that i talked about last pod we saw a number of counters to different things Denver had been doing defensively that it wasn't consistent, but there were sequences of the game where LA would do it like six or seven times in a row. And, and I would get really, really excited and they'd be kicking butt. And then we kind of fall back to nor- what we normally do. So we saw the highs, we saw the lows, but definitely an, an interesting game. And yeah, let's, let's definitely get into what we had been talking about previously and update everyone because we've seen each of those elements, which have maintained being core pieces of the series evolve series to series or game to game and see the teams do different things and approach things differently. And yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to get through this. So one of the things we've been calling for since the game one adjustment Vogel made was starting Dwight in the first half, not just the second half. So we saw immediately what an impact he made both on, on the offensive and the defensive end. So let's kind of start there. What did you think about Vogel starting Dwight and how that was able to give us an advantage on the offensive rebounds that actually gave us, you know, pushed us through to the end of this game? That was a major advantage. How did his adjustment starting Dwight change the scheme for Denver? Yeah, it it made a big difference. And it wasn't just so Dwight was very important, but we also saw an increased use of, I mean, not really an increased use, but between Dwight and JaVale, Jokic was usually out there against a, a true center on the on the other side for the Lakers. If we look at the success that Dwight and the Lakers have had against Jokic, it's it's been pretty clear. It's been fairly consistent game to game. Just based on the numbers leaving this game, Jokic has played 66 minutes against the Lakers with Dwight out there. 
and Denver's been minus 27 in those minutes versus McGee, 23 minutes where Denver's minus two. Not quite the same, but LA still is holding their own. And then uh, against AD as as the biggest dude out there, Denver's actually been t- plus 13 in 47 minutes. So when Jokic has played and the Lakers haven't countered with one of their big guys, Denver has had the edge. Now, if we look at the non-Jokic minutes, that's where Anthony Davis has really been able to shine. And that's where we see the Lakers kicking butt when he's out there. But using the bigger lineups more against Jokic is something that we've been asking for and something we saw in this game where 71% of the minutes that Jokic played were against either Howard or McGee, which is tied with game one for the most time he has faced the Laker bigs. And, And like you said, the offensive rebounding was just a huge part of it. But it wasn't just that. He was scoring. He was getting putbacks. Something that we spoke about last podcast was the pre-rotating that Denver had been doing where their big guy would pretty early on a drive or or in an isolation or a post-up get outside the charge circle and be in a position to take a charge in lieu of kind of staying with his guy and then moving over later to try to either be vertical or try to block a shot. Denver knows they don't have great shot blockers, so they're instead going to take those charges by pre-rotating. And what that's given up are open lobs, which the Lakers haven't used all that well. But they've also given Dwight a chance to just have just the open paint to him. If Jokic goes and takes three steps away from him to shade towards LeBron, if LeBron shoots and, and he misses, there's nobody there to box out Howard. So yelling at Jokic for, for not boxing out hard isn't quite the right critique that I saw some people using. Because he was doing his job within their scheme, it just gave up these offensive rebounds to Dwight. And because he was there and we didn't just have a small lineup and like Markeith Morris going and standing at the three-point line, we were able to take advantage of the the weakness that this sort of defensive alignment has. So just by having a big out there, we took advantage of it. And Dwight, among anybody, is going to really kind of bully people. And we saw him get several putbacks and I was just really pleased with the fact that he played. He drew a ton of fouls. He he drew four fouls, only committed two. Jokic drew three fouls, but committed five on the game. That was a, that was a huge difference maker. And then also on that note, AD, AD drew ten. LeBron drew nine fouls, and Murray drew eight fouls. That just that physicality and putting him in the right spot allowed him to be a lob threat and get those offensive rebounds and in a way, almost create more spacing for the Lakers because then later in the game, Denver stopped pre-rotating because they had to stick on him. And all of a sudden, those driving lanes were a little bit more open. And we saw Rajon Rondo take advantage of that. KCP had a strong finish. LeBron took advantage of it a couple times. So by doing those things early in the game, we got Denver to shift their approach and that opened up driving lanes later in the game. So I was really pleased with what we saw there. I loved getting Dwight in the game earlier. I think you were spot on with this a couple pods ago. Go ahead and start him. That gives us another roll of the dice to see how the foul game goes. And it ended up going in our favor. And we saw Jokic play less than he normally does. And Dwight played well above uh, what he normally has in this series. Um, He played, I think, over 20 minutes. So I was really happy. That was a great adjustment. And then also in the first quarter, we saw the Lakers go to KCP Rondo instead of a Caruso, Rondo, LeBron, and, and bring a second big out there later on, which I thought was smart. As much credit as I will give Vogel for his adjustment on Dwight, I do think it's a little interesting that he hasn't been getting that fourth quarter shift. I don't completely understand it, especially toward the end of the game. Maybe he doesn't have the stamina that you want from him, but 
if that's the way that helps you build that 10 point lead in the first half offensive rebounds and Dwight ended the game with 24% offensive rebound percentage, which is, you know, by far it's the highest in the game. That's just ridiculous. Use Dwight in those moments too. I thought the Lakers kind of got bailed out at the end when Markeith Morris fouled out. Mm -hmm. So I still think Dwight has another four to five minutes left to play. And his, if it's not in the tank, then he's got to dig deep. But, you know, we saw them try to kind of play a Jokic Plumley lineup at the beginning of the second quarter, which now I kind of want to get into Dwight and JaVale effectively swapping spots in the rotation. I saw somewhere on Twitter someone bringing up the idea that Frank might, might not want to play McGee because he's not playing with the normal rotation. If you start Dwight, he's not playing with guys. The chemistry is kind of weird. I thought JaVale did well in his shift at the beginning of the second quarter as well and was also a, a help securing some of the rebounds and just being a physical shot contester at the rim, even though he's not normally playing with that lineup. JaVale still got a run in the first half. He didn't in the second half. The Lakers have been getting killed in those AD at the five minutes in this series. How did we adjust to play fewer of those minutes this game? And is that something you think we'll see going forward? McGee and uh, Dwight flipping spots in the rotation. I, I would like to see more of it. If, 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 for example, Howard were to have gotten in more foul trouble, I don't think we would have needed to take the foot off the gas pedal because if he's not going to play that fourth quarter stint, which I think he probably should, then you should have no problem with him fouling out in the third quarter. There really should be no reason other than if he's just truly exhausted that Dwight shouldn't be getting more minutes. I, I liked playing McGee out there where Dwight normally would. I don't think that just cutting McGee from the rotation entirely is the right move. And, you know, LA doesn't have the same advantage with those McGee minutes against the Jokic lineup as they do with Howard. But McGee out there instead of Morris when defending someone like Plumlee or some of those more athletic Denver players, I think gave an advantage to LA. If if their perimeter defense were to get blown by, they had a little bit of rim protection. We know McGee's vulnerable to some of those perimeter isolations, but with the scheme they're running, you live with it. And, and as a whole, LA has been okay. So it's not going to look pretty all the time, but keeping both of those bigs out there has been impactful pretty much every single game. And we saw those two bigs play out there against Jokic for the highest percentage of any game this series um, or, or tied for that. So I, I was pretty happy from a rotation standpoint. I think later in the game, I was a little irked. Like you said, uh, Marquis fouled out. And for like two seconds, I was like, oh, okay, great. We can bring Dwight in. And then we brought Caruso in instead. Yeah. And I, I was like, ah, yeah. ooh. Um, I don't know why we treat the second half of the fourth quarter as if it's not playing basketball, we stop running plays. We decide that we're not allowed to have big players out there. In in we saw really the offense break down quite a bit. Thankfully, the defense held up fairly well, and I think LeBron taking Murray was a piece of that. And in LA, actually switched up some of their screen coverages later in the game, which we can talk about. But keeping Dwight out there or McGee if you have to late in the game, I don't think is the worst thing in the world because we continue to see game after game. This Denver team doesn't care if you have Markeith Morris standing in, in the corner. They're not going to go stand next to him and give you open lanes to drive. So it, you might as well have the offensive rebounding, the defensive rebounding, the rim protection, and that lob threat. I don't know. I, I would love to see some improvement there, but for three quarters of the game, I was pretty pleased with the rotations. Yeah, the 
Nuggets shot better than the Lakers in this game, and they lost. If you look at the box score, you know, everyone is 25 to 6 second chance points difference, and that's massive for in a game that was decided by six points. Each game this series, the team who's been more aggressive on the rebounding front has won. So I expect Denver to adjust and send more of their guards crashing the glass and you know Paul Millsap and Jokic probably won't have foul trouble and those two are the better rebounders on the team. Also an interesting thought to ask Tim if you're the Denver Nuggets do you trot out there your best offensive lineup and hope to score more than the Lakers? Or do you put out your best defensive lineup and try to stymie this already kind of stagnant Lakers offense at times to try to get ahead of them that way? It's hard because you could see where Monty Morris and Michael Porter Jr. and guys will give you deficits on the defensive end. Like Gary Harris is a good defender, but he's been terrible on offense. So he hasn't been in toward the fourth quarter. Uh, of these games lately, right? You see Monty Morris got a shift at the end of the fourth today, uh, last night. If you're the Nuggets, what do you play P.J. Dozier more? Do you focus on Michael Porter Jr.'s rebounding ability, who's actually really helped them at his size and his shooting and his shot creation and uh, pressuring the rim? What's the answer as far as trying to beat the Lakers if you are the Nuggets? I would probably focus on the offensive end. And the reason for that is defensively, with how Denver is sagging into the paint, they're, they're, they're stunting hard on any sort of drives. They're pre-rotating at the rim to create rim protection no matter who's doing it. Whether it be a guard or a big, you can take a charge. They're going under ball screens. All of these things make it so that the Lakers can pick whatever matchups they want with LeBron. They can force you to switch. And LeBron can be defending... Plumley or Morris or Gary Harris or or you, but you're going to have guys behind you sta- almost standing right next to you, deterring that drive from happening and making life difficult for LeBron if he does want to try to drive through people in the way that mitigates the potential negative impact that those poor defenders can have. That doesn't mean it's impervious to those things. And when the Lakers can get running, the better defenders and the weaker defenders kind of come out to play. But against that set defense, which Denver will get more of if they're they're scoring more offensively, I would, with the way they're they're approaching things and the way that this series has gone, I would try to throw my best offensive lineup out there, score as much as I can, let the Lakers go after switches, and then LeBron dribble around until there's six seconds left and and force them to drive and score over you or commit an offensive foul or need to be scrambling around and taking last second shots. And, and really put the pressure on that Lakers offense because they've been really stagnant. At the end of the game, their offense went away and most of their points came from if they got in transition, that was great. If they didn't get in transition, it was broken plays or like offensive rebounds on like long bounces to like random spots on the court. Like that one Rajon Rondo offensive rebound or AD got one or just non-shooting fouls, like fouls outside the three-point line. Uh, just because LeBron was trying to use a ball screen that would result in free throws. Just silly things like that where the Lakers, if you just look at the the time and where everybody was standing on the court when those plays happened, you would say, hey, there's not, they don't have anything going on here. But based on all those broken plays and those silly fouls, they were able to still continue scoring, but Denver just couldn't score on the other end. So I think if you can keep Porter out there, if you can keep Jeremy Grant out there, I don't know, th- throw Jokic, and Murray 
Porter, Grant, and who would our fifth guy be? I, I honestly, PJ Dozier might make some sense. Gary Harris could make sense defensively, but he's been shooting not all that great. So I don't know if I'd want him out there in that closing lineup. Maybe Monte Morris, but they, I, I would focus on offense if I'm them because just because of the way both teams are schematically approaching the end of games. Well, and the Lakers defense wasn't particularly good last night. They had 120 defensive rating as a team. I thought that Jamal Murray's arriving as we speak. I was not convinced that he could do this on a night-to-night basis against a defense like the Lakers, but the level of shot making, the tools in the bag, he's actually initiating contact now to create space, which was always kind of a knock on him for me. He's not a physical player getting to the rim. He's mm-hmm. shifty, yes. He'll he'll up and under like Kyrie, like one of the most incredible layups I've seen in the playoffs in, in my life. You know, that was unbelievable talent from Jamal Murray last night. The Lakers have been trying to switch up how they attack him on defense. Catch hedges, we've talked about switching aggressively, but this guy is getting almost whatever he wants and shooting extremely well right now. Jamal Murray just torched the Lakers, but it still wasn't enough. And I'm okay with that game plan. Jeremy Grant didn't go off for 26 again. You know, Jamal Murray didn't get eight rebounds again. We controlled the offensive glass. If Jamal Murray is going to score 40 points a night, I'm not convinced that's the Denver Nuggets' best path to beating the Lakers. Now, that said, what did you see about the Mm -hmm. coverages that the Lakers threw at him tonight? Because I'm thinking, Tim, that it's about time for the blitzes and really, really hard hedges that we gave James Harden and Damian Lillard in the first couple rounds. Yeah, this was an interesting game to log the film on and and tally all the numbers because the Lakers threw more coverages at Murray in this game than they had in any other game so far. We saw a continuance of those catch hedges that either were switched if if he strung the screens out or LA would try to recover if he didn't. I think we did a much, much better job this game of not being stubborn about that. And if he did string it out, switch. If he didn't string it out, recover. And because of that, the efficiency that Denver had when we were catch, doing those catch hedges and recovering was much lower this game than it was last game when we were being really stubborn and giving them more juicy opportunities because we just would not want to give up a switch. We saw 11 of those catch and recovers. Denver scored 10 points on six chances, and then there were five times that we did it where there was just no advantage created. When we switched, uh, we did that 18 times and gave up 14 points on 13 chances plus five that we negated. We actually blitzed seven different times. Usually when Jokic wasn't the screener, this on those seven times, Denver got only two points on six chances, plus one that was negated. And then we actually did hard hedge in the fourth quarter a bit, and it gave Denver some trouble. Murray couldn't turn the corner. Jokic wasn't really rolling or popping hard. It was just kind of this in-between area, and and they turned the ball over a couple times. The only two points they scored on those five possessions were from free throws but on every one of the other ones they were turning it over or taking bad shots so I I liked late in the game mixing in those actual hard hedges where you're not just waiting for him to come off the screen you're going up to him and and not letting him turn the quarter and then recovering and then we also had four possessions where um, between ball screens and handoffs where mostly on the handoffs instead of having the let's say it was Jokic executing the handoff instead of having Jokic's guy do anything he just stayed on Jokic and let Murray turn the corner, which 
wasn't ideal, but if you go under that with your guard, we at least kind of met him a couple times, um, and they scored four points on four possessions there. So overall, 33 points on 33 chances plus 12 that we negated. So 45 total times they ran ball screens or handoffs for 33 points. Um, I want to know that those 45 times, that's actually a 50% increase of the 30 that they ran last game. So they found something that was working. It was working because we were being stubborn about not giving up switches. So they used them a bunch more. But I think LA did a better job mixing up coverages. The blitzes when Jokic isn't there worked. The hard hedges worked pretty well. I think some of these raw numbers may be a little tricky because they were able to generate a couple good looks that were just missed, especially against the blitzes. Overall, I I think we had the right mix and the versatility defensively to pick the right coverage at the right point in time rather than saying we're only going to switch or we're only going to try to catch and recover or we're only going to blitz because there are different positions where you can put a defense where if they do want to play that catch and recover you're going to score off of it or if they do want a hard hedge you're running the right play to attack it so LA did a good job being flexible with those coverages and not making any one of these more vulnerable than normal because they showed they couldn't adapt. So I was pretty pleased with that. Murray, like you said, scored a bunch, but we saw Jokic not getting involved. We saw the playmaking from those ball screens be much less because we were giving up fewer downhill attacks. I think in the, I think it was the third quarter, Denver got their offense going a little bit because they started running some set plays and they were getting Murray coming off of like down screens from Jokic. And then they would have like Millsap pass to one of the two of them because that effectively removes those hard hedges or those traps. So Denver used a couple different workarounds, but against those actions themselves, I think we did a pretty good job. And Murray did score a bunch, but I think he had, what, 32 points on 28 possessions or something like that. So that's not going it, to... It's a lot, but it's not going to kill you if you're the defense as long as you're able to keep the rest of the team in check. And by not giving up those drop coverages or not refusing to switch when he strings out those ball screens, they weren't getting as many open shots for teammates from passes from Murray, which is really where the Denver offense can get clicking. So overall, I was pretty happy. 32 points, but eight assists and four turnovers. So that's closer to, you know, 50-ish points responsible for than than just the 32, but he did have the four turnovers and some of those assists are or were from when the Lakers were playing that 3-2 zone that you talked about last pod and it didn't quite work out as well. Let's talk about that zone. Let's talk about the zone. I personally think that the Nuggets knew were prepared to to beat it, but I also think the Lakers aren't as sharp with it and Kyle Kuzma particularly struggled Mm -hmm. on the wing. Yeah, if uh, I logged seven possessions where we ran it, Six of those seven were in the first quarter. One was in the second quarter, and then we didn't go back to it. And the reason we didn't go back to it were two things. Like you said, one, we didn't execute all that well. And Kyle Kuzma specifically on, I believe, three of those seven possessions blew his coverage of what he should have been doing. It didn't always result in a score, but it wasn't a good sign. And the fact that the Lakers have just kind of implemented this later in the playoffs and maybe not have had a bunch of practice time. And the fact that Houston didn't attack it with any sort of intelligence didn't really test this defense and make them have to go through and say, oh, you know what, if they run this action, here's how we'd rotate and here's how we'd defend it. This is almost a brand new novel experience for this 3-2 zone against facing a team that knows what they're doing. The execution wasn't great. 
But if Denver weren't attacking it smartly, I would say, hey, maybe we go back to this. But Denver also did some really smart things to attack it. They ended up with 11 points on seven possessions, but pretty much on every single one of those possessions, they did something that was a 3-2 zone buster. One time they aligned to get like a post mismatch with shooters spaced out and they let Jokic attack. I think it was Rajon Rondo or Alex Caruso. If the Lakers didn't cover that man in the middle, which is how Denver likes to align, if they didn't cover that man in the middle, they would just kind of give it to him and let him attack downhill. If we did cover that man in the middle with our one of our two low men, what Denver would then do is get the ball to whatever wing that was and try to attack around the corner, which worked on multiple occasions. What they also did once was when that low man comes up to take that uh, high post guy, they would send a shooter baseline from corner to corner to attack that then vacated space. And, and that worked. They attacked our wing defenders a couple times. They went after Markeith Morris. They would screen those wing defenders. Um, so they, they knew what they were doing. It put short. So I don't expect to see much of this. If we do run it, maybe we'd run it against some, you know, just now and then randomly, maybe a game from now or two games from now, if, if the series goes that far or do it against a bench lineup or do it from an out of bounds situation. I don't know. But I it didn't work. And if you were wondering what happened to like the starting units defensive rating and why it wasn't great, this was why Denver was hitting a lot of shots. L.A. was also hitting pretty much everything in that first quarter, but uh, against the 3-2 zone specifically, it was excellent offense for Denver pretty much every single possession. I think the 3-2 zone is something that you could theoretically utilize after a string of successful Jokic-Murray pick-and-rolls that you keep having to switch or, you know, some Murray's getting to the basket. If there's a stretch where they keep going at it, it's it's worth it's a change up, right? If is to you to borrow a, a baseball mm-hmm. analogy. You don't throw it every pitch, but when you utilize it well, it could throw a wrench in, in your plans there. Other than that, we talked about Lakers defending Jamal Murray. Uh I thought that the Lakers did a really good job, like you said, focusing then what I've been asking for this whole series, just keeping your bigs on Jokic and making him beat them. And he's getting tired. He's getting in foul trouble. And he was just not as impactful on the game. 1.07 points per possession, which you live with, you know, 16 points in foul trouble most of the game. Now, I don't want to take this too far on uh, down a, a rabbit hole here, Tim, but I do want your quick thoughts on. Michael Malone substituting Nikola Jokic in and out for offense, defense late in the game. I personally don't like it. I think that coaches in general are too conservative with protecting players in foul trouble when you limit your best players minutes. Now, if you play him three less minutes because he got a third foul with four minutes left in the second, and right, and you bench him for those four minutes, and your team is considerably less efficient on offense and defense. Just looking at the foul rate, I just don't agree fundamentally with how coaches choose to be conservative with their players' minutes in playoffs. In times that if he gets that fourth foul, you go to him and you say, Listen, we still, you have to be on the court, you have to play smarter. You have to give yourself an opportunity. And if they get the fouls, they get the fouls. We've talked about it with Dwight. But but what do you think about how coaches implant, implement their rotations with their best players in foul trouble? So that's something that we've taken a look at as not B-ball index, the 
public data group, but B-Ball Index, the consulting firm in, in speaking with college teams and in really taking a look at this because it you, you have to look at a bunch of factors. You have to look at right. who that offensive player is and what, what their job is on offense and mm-hmm. defense and how likely they are to like what 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 is the foul rate we should expect from this guy and based off of that in in how the game is going plus usage too right yeah exactly yeah um and and how important are they is it Dwight Howard who we can have foul out or is it Nikola Jokic who is a big piece of your offense there are so many factors to consider you have to look at the other team's style of play what sorts of situations they'd be putting him in you have to look at who who's behind him and what you'd be doing I overall, I think there's a right way to approach it and there's no real easy answer to it other than to say, analyze all the information you can and make the most informed decision possible. I do think in general, coaches have a tendency to bench players automatically in times that they shouldn't, um, especially for players that they shouldn't. Like if Alex Crusoe gets in foul trouble, I don't care. If Markeith Moore or JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard get in foul trouble, doesn't matter to me because these guys are only playing like 15 minutes anyways. You have to understand right. if, if he has a, like his pitch count is 50 and he's already 30 pitches in and he starts getting in foul trouble, you're, you're already actually a pretty decent way along to what you'd already expect from him. So even if it's the second quarter, that doesn't mean you have to treat it as though you need him for the whole second half. Um, so understand what the anticipated playing time for those guys would be to get a better sense of how far along you are and how much that foul trouble actually means. In terms of this game and that late game substituting for Jokic, and when they took him out, they would go to Torrey Craig instead. I don't hate it on defense. I can understand if, I don't know. I I don't know if it's the best move. It's the type of situation where like he's worth more on offense than he'd be giving up on defense. And with the way their defensive scheme was working, he, just like we said in the beginning, you can have worse defenders out there or guys that you want to hide a little bit. And when you have that hard stunting and you have the going under ball screens and all these different things, you can get away with guys who are in foul trouble or are worse defenders. So I don't feel as though the situation warranted Denver approaching it the way they did. By putting Craig in, I guess they got a little bit more versatility. And if we got some, who do we have out there? We had... Rondo, AD, LeBron, KCP, and then Morris until he fouled out, and then it was Caruso. So against a smaller Laker lineup, I can understand wanting to have smaller guys so you can pick and pop really easily. Or if LA picks and pops, you can switch really easily and not be giving up open shots and then force somebody to have to isolate against somebody else. I, I don't know. We we saw last game, not this one, but the, the one before that, LeBron attack Jokic off the drive in mismatch situations. Maybe that was on Malone's mind and one is a weakness too as they're going to go after him if they know he's in foul trouble and we don't want him to foul out so I don't know I'm, I'm kind of on the fence I can understand it I don't know if I necessarily agree with it over the stretch they were doing that I think we went plus one so it wasn't a killer for them but when they're trying to come back you you want to just give it your best shot and I, I'd rather have my guys foul out than finish the game with five fouls and play three less minutes than they normally would have because I was scared of them fouling out 
I didn't want to bring a, a giant segment out of it today, but at some point I, I do want to have an extended conversation about this probably in the off season, because I think it's one of those strategies that is, is kept to a T. And I, I think that there's a lot more nuance there. Like you said, moving on kind of to other factors and adjustments in this game, one th- a bang, 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 back to back to back to back stretch in the second quarter was LeBron and the adjustments with Kuzma setting some of those ghost screens. Right. And it really gave, Gave Michael Porter Jr. a lot of issues and the Lakers were able to do in general just a lot more off ball motion in the second quarter to get Kyle Kuzma coming off a pin down with JaVale McGee so he actually he doesn't have to dribble into an advantage he can get downhill and he found me so getting other players involved uh, doing some more actions off ball using some of those um, pin flares that you talked about what did the Lakers offense look like to you when Denver was really trying to pack the paint and keep the ball out of LeBron going to the basket with a head of steam. Yeah, we we did a lot of good things. Um, despite all of that, we we can still look at LeBron. He had what uh, eight points on fourteen scoring possessions, attacking from the pick and roll, post ups, and perimeter isolation. So it's not great overall. It, that's pretty good if you're Denver. And the Lakers showed the right counters. We didn't show them. I mean, I'll say this. We showed them on pretty high volume and we saw some of them work and change the way that Denver played defense. We attacked the pre-rotating pretty well with Dwight getting those offensive rebounds, having some lob opportunities, setting screens for shooters, setting those pin-in flares like we talked about where you just, you don't, the shooter doesn't go anywhere, but you just stand in the way of his defenders so they can't rotate. Actually, on that Kuz pin down that you talked about, where he was going downhill without needing to dribble his way into that. Him finding, I think it was Caruso open, was because we set a, I think JaVale set a pin and flare on that play. We saw them run those ghost screens with Kuzma, where, like we talked about before, run it like a wide receiver in football where you're anticipating getting the ball, because that's the way you just need to run these. And there was one play where he ran two in a row, and on the second one, he was open for the shot. On the first one, he actually had uh, JaVale open for a lob because Jokic was pre-rotating. And then on the very next play, we ran the same thing for Kuz and he got another wide open three. We saw a few plays later, Dwight was open for a lob twice, but didn't get it from LeBron. But then he, because of that pre-rotating, he was open for the offensive rebound and he got that putback dunk and one right over Grant. We saw just like a, a big sequence of plays in that second quarter where we used those pin and flares and we had like on one play Kuzma cut, cut from the top of the key across the lane against the paint packing and it caused some defensive miscommunication that got him a pretty easy bucket. We ran a lob play for McGee the very next play after that, but actually Plumley was the guy on the weak side. So this was like the only lineup that that wouldn't work against because Morris was standing in the opposite corner. Plumley was his guy, didn't care about his shooting and, and was in the paint to to cause problems for McGee on the backside and ended up breaking up that lob. But literally against any other lineup Denver has, that play would have worked. And the only reason we saw that Plumlee-Jokic uh, lineup was because Millsap got in foul trouble. But Ellie was doing the right things. Just uh, uh, in that second quarter, we did all the right things and it resulted in Denver stopping doing their pre-rotating nearly as much in the second half. We didn't as frequently attack the stunts that they were doing where they would sag in and just kind of stand in the way, create a wall for LeBron so he couldn't drive. We need more cutting or we need more flaring for those players. When we have guys standing next to each other, that's an easy way to let Denver 
not need to, you know, spend three defenders to guard three players standing next to each other on offense, send that extra guy middle. So I don't know. LA wasn't perfect, but we had segments of the game where we did all the right things and we saw it work in the moment and then result in easier offense for LA in future possessions. And I'm just looking through all my notes. I have so many occasions where we ran something and we ran a flare, we ran a cut and it was open or the lob was open, but AD didn't make the pass or Alex Crusoe didn't make the pass or LeBron uh, James didn't make the pass. Rajon Rondo usually made the pass, which which has been one of the things that's made me uh, more happy to see him play in this series than I otherwise would be. LA's doing a lot of the right things. We just need to use them because if we continue using them more, Denver will have to respect them and, and get away from what they've been doing that's making life difficult for LeBron. The more we use them, but but or the more we run them, but don't actually use them, the less Denver needs to respect those actions and, and the more difficult it'll be. And if you're spending, uh, like there was one situation where we ran one of those curls for AD where he starts in the corner and then we have a guard set a screen for him and he just cuts to the rim. And LeBron has the ball at the high post on that side. So it's a really easy, close pass. You know, we actually ran it for Markeith Morris this time. Got a bucket. Denver couldn't stop it. We ran it a couple plays later. This time, they sent an extra defender from the weak side to clog that up, which created a two-on-one uh, situation for the Lakers between two shooters and one defender. So Danny Green set one of those pin and flare screens for Markeith Morris. He was wide open for like five seconds, but LeBron didn't get him the ball. So by doing that, we didn't accomplish anything offensively. We're not, we didn't punish them for doing what they were doing defensively. And we're not preventing them in future possessions from continuing to do what they did in that possession defensively. So we let them stop that curl play that they weren't otherwise going to stop and, and give up something to us that we just didn't take. So there was a lot that I saw that I liked. We used some of it and it worked and it stood out and, and I was excited. I saw people in my mentions were excited. Um, the listeners are excited, but we need to use more of it because we're still running it. We just need to actually get those players the ball because it's available and it'll do the damage that we want it to do. And then we'll see offensive excellence from the Lakers and see things open up a little bit more. Yeah, we saw the non-AD LeBron minutes be much, much more effective this last game than they were in game three and game two for that matter. The other thing that I think you can directly tie into this conversation and in these lineups and how they perform, why they did such a better job, is that I'm quite concerned with LeBron's shot making right now. And that ties me with his decision making. He's continuing to over-penetrate into some of these clogged lanes and he is getting those fouls that he should be getting right. He shot free throws last night in a way that I think some people will read as a unfair correction from the league. But I think Frank Vogel said it. He's going through the proper channels. We talked about Denver probably sending a tape on Dwight Howard and him getting fouls in game two right away. So this is how these things happen. It's there's a process and referees will go and look at the film and say, yeah, LeBron, you're right. You are getting fouled and we will look for X, Y and Z in the next game. So I don't think of it as a conspiracy. I think of it as a natural reaction to a process that the NBA has to clean up and get things right. Um, now, sometimes they might be a little slow to that. You could argue they could do some of these things in game and some of these 
questions won't be so on on the forefront of people's minds, but ultimately LeBron's decision making is tied to him not trusting his jumper. And when he does get some of those screens and they're going under and he's not ready, he's not willing to fire it up because he doesn't trust it. So when he barrels in and hopefully gets a blocking foul on Jeremy Grant, he's making bad decisions. The Nuggets are getting in his passing lanes and they're just clogging there. If he could make some of those jumpers, even some of those mid range jumpers, you know, after he puts a guy in jail, he could really force a lot more uh, force the Nuggets to close that distance and give him even more of an advantage trying to get to the basket because eight points on 14 scoring possessions in the pick and roll going to the rim is not good. It's not just not good for LeBron. It's not good. The Lakers at least did a little bit better in getting got getting Caruso a couple open looks. You know, Rondo did quite well at finding KCP on, on you know, that nice out of bounds play. KCP did a nice job being more aggressive, attacking closeouts. He said in his interview on TNT, he was watching film and noticed that they're flying by his closeouts. So he got that nice dunk, right? And he's a quick leaper. You attack Jokic and you're coming fast at him. He doesn't have the time to adjust and get there and contest that dunk in KCP before Jokic could even jump. So all of those role players being more aggressive around LeBron makes his life easier and making shots helps too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And we've, I mean, this isn't a new issue for LeBron in these playoffs. Uh, Over the past couple series, we've seen teams really commit to defending the drive. And Denver has done more to, I don't know if disrespect's the right word, but ignore LA adding more shooting on the court and continue defending those drives and have that pre-rotation happening from, from the weak side big. And put LeBron in a situation where he can he can try to use ball screens, but they're going under those. And I mean, I think the the only thing the Lakers did to try to counter that was the one time Markeith Morris had an illegal screen trying to like hold the guy from going under. But like we've seen adjustments in other to other things Denver was doing, but we did not see an adjustment to Denver going under ball screens. If the Lakers try to do something, and and we don't have to spend five minutes rehashing what we've spoken about the last two podcasts, if they use those counters they'll be put in a better situation with those. But I, I think I would love to see more awareness in-game from the Lakers to say, based off of how we've countered, this is what Denver is now doing. Now they are not pre-rotating with their big. That hasn't done anything about the stunting, and you're still going to have issues if you're trying to drive through people and you're not doing it hard. But LeBron is very well equipped to be like a running back, burst through that line, not commit a charge against the first line because they're all just kind of reaching in. But if that second line of defense, if that pre-rotation isn't there, he doesn't need to worry about the over-penetration and charge committing or uh, making, you know, jump passes late and, and causing turnovers because that's what you get when both of those things are happening. If you have to burst through that line, pick the ball up, lose your dribble, and be in the air, and then you get through that line and, uh-oh, there's a wall standing there of somebody in charge-taking position. That's when you get charges. That's when you get bad pass turnovers. That's when the Lakers' offense hasn't worked. But if that second line of defense isn't there, you are able to burst through that line and then go finish strong at the basket. So we did see a little bit of that, but I there are some teams you can watch and something happens in the game. Somebody gets in foul trouble or an adjustment is made. And all of a sudden, they they see that. They smell the blood in the water. And they go after it immediately. 
It doesn't take them a quarter. It doesn't take them a game. It doesn't take them half time to say, oh, you know what? They're not rotating, pre-rotating anymore. Or you know what? Uh, Nikola Jokic has five fouls. Why don't we go after him? Those teams go after it right away. And I would have loved to see LeBron recognize that the defense, like I can get through this first line if, if we align the right way. If we create those double gaps where I don't have Alex Caruso, who the defense is more than willing to sag off of standing at the wing when I'm at the top of the key. Because if you do that and you have, I don't know, if you have Danny Green on the other wing, you're going to be facing three defenders in front of LeBron, not one guy with two guys with their kind of hands in the way. If, if you can have LeBron at the top of the key, nobody in the wing, and then somebody in the corner, then you can start driving. And we saw Rajon Rondo, when he came into the game in the third quarter, he got to the rim, he was driving the ball, he was able to keep a live dribble because Denver wasn't pre-rotating because LA had attacked it. And they also didn't have those stunts coming because there was nobody to stunt. There was nobody in that way because the Lakers didn't have somebody on the wing. So all of a sudden, Rajon Rondo comes in and it looks like he can just get to the rim at will. Some of that was moving that offensive player out of the way. Some of it was the pre-rotation not happening. And then uh, he continued to make sure that pre-rotation didn't happen by throwing little fake, you know, uh, shot fakes almost to the lob a couple times to JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard. Um, I think it was JaVale McGee to not let that rim protection try to rotate late. So he's just, I'm seeing now on film the IQ of him recognizing these little things that I would love to see LeBron in, in all that he does and being able to orchestrate things say, okay, they're not pre-rotating. You, hey, Alex Crusoe, get the hell out of the, the, the way. Get out of the wing. Let's remove that defender. That gives me a driving lane. There's no rim protection. I'm going to go at the rim hard and, and make that decision and then having that cutting or whatever weak side. But we're just not putting ourselves in the right position to succeed and not recognizing those things in game and are losing what we could potentially be gaining after getting Denver to stop pre-rotating. Because you, you do all you can to get to, to attack it. And then once they say, all right, fine, we'll stop pre-rotating. If you don't attack it, then you haven't really gained any advantage. You've just allowed them to stop giving up those offensive rebounds and stop giving up those lobs. So LA needs to be quicker with those adjustments because they're there. That was a really long-winded, uh, <laughs> really long-winded way to, of, of saying those opportunities are there for LeBron. We just need to either him or Vogel or, or if it's Rajon Rondo seeing it and telling him, get that guy out of the wing, go attack because they're not re- rotating and we'll, you'll be able to be more effective than you are in the pick and roll or, or trying to isolate against three guys standing right in front of you. Yeah, and at least to his credit, LeBron adjusted from last game and had zero turnovers this. So that's something you love to see. The mm-hmm. Lakers really limited their their turnovers in this game to not help Denver get some of those easy baskets and transition. Yeah, let's talk about Rondo a little bit more. I It's so frustrating to see him come in the end of the first quarter and have a couple plays in a row where you know he gives up an offensive rebound off of a free throw just because he just lazily stands there and because he doesn't give a crap at the end of quarters he doesn't think anyone else will so he doesn't even put a body on Morris and yes the ball kind of bounced perfectly over Rondo and into Morris's hands but Rondo is just so frustrating watching him on defense kind of force a switch that's not completely necessary and then there's a whole miscommunication rotation after that and then come on offense and you know, he can he can over 
penetrate. He can over dribble. He just really slows the ball sometimes. But then you see he's really the only guard on our team that could put like that outside pressure in the pick and roll to actually finish at the rim. Or like you said, throw the lob. And he did actually get one to Anthony Davis finally. But the lob's been there. We've talked about it since before the series started, right? We've talked about the verticality. We've talked about that that will be there, especially if they're pre-rotating. And Dwight, JaVale, they just haven't gotten the looks. They've thrown a couple of lobs to JaVale that have just kind of been blocked up in the pick and roll. But, you know, it's it's there. I don't. I think maybe LeBron's turning to be more conservative regular season. You know those those spin around in the post when they're fronting Anthony Davis, or when he's running the pick and roll. He throws it. I just maybe he's being a little bit conservative because he you knows it's the Western Conference Finals. So. I think it's a different kind of look. Too. I don't know. It's like a, a lob. Hmm. The the action of a lob is something like he's he's very well able to do, and it's something he in our bigs and, and Rondo as a passer can execute. We've even even seen. KCP can throw those. Caruso can throw those. Kuzma can throw those at times. But the the type of look that the defense is giving us, I don't, I mean, at least from what I can recall, I wouldn't say we've seen this defense in the regular season, the way that Denver's executing it right now. So it, it's just a new challenge. You may not immediately have the answer to it, but four games into the series, or I guess since they started doing this in when they do the second half of game three, no second half of game two is when Denver started making these adjustments. You've seen it now for a game and a half before even getting into this game. By now we should, we should know that's there. So maybe you're right. Maybe he's just trying to be conservative, but it really takes a little bit of the shine off of thinking of LeBron as some sort of super computer. When we see him not making these lob attempts that are open consistently, we not we see him ignoring those pin in flares for for wide open shooters, um, and they're not pin in flares for Alex Caruso or or Dwight Howard to shoot threes. These are for KCP. These are for Markeith Morris. Like these are the shots that if if he's looking around the court and he's kind of like, uh, have you seen the the second spectrum um, video feed where you you watch and they have like those little motion graphics that'll say where the player is right now, we would expect his effective field goal percentage to be like 30% or 20%. I don't or know, that's cool. It's really neat. It's like 2K. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it's really neat because you can see at all points of time based on the shot clock, where the guys are standing, where the defenders are standing, who has the ball, how good they are at the shots. If they were to take a shot now, what value would that shot expected to yield? And, and then when they do shot, shoot it, they'll like keep the number up so you can make sure you see it. But if you think of LeBron as like looking around the court, surveying all these things and thinking about that, that's a great mythology to have. But we're not seeing it this series. And, and we didn't see it last series when it comes to those lobs and in some of these open shooters. So uh, to me, it's, it's recognizing that you, you want to be better every game. You've got to go to that film room. You have to go see what the defense is giving you and, and just go take those because those are there. And LeBron can be the most amazing player in the world of basketball when he is is seeing all of these things and he has the skill set to make all those passes. But right now, it just doesn't seem like he's seeing that. And I don't know if that's because he's being bothered by by more guys in his driving lanes or if he's just getting older or what it is. But the opportunities are there and LA is doing most of the right things offensively from an X's and O's standpoint to 
take advantage of what Denver's doing. They just need their their playmakers to make those plays. So getting toward the end here, there's one last thing I think I wanted to get into briefly. We've talked a lot about Dwight and LeBron. We haven't talked a lot about that first quarter shift, that like four or five minute stretch where it was kind of Anthony Davis and Jamal Murray back and forth, right? That was incredible shot making from Anthony Davis. And once Paul Millsap was subbed out, I was wondering if, you know, before the series started, Jeremy Grant was a big, important player to me because I thought he'd be guarding Anthony Davis more. Millsap doesn't really give you as much as Grant does on the offensive end, in my opinion. So I kind of thought Millsap might have some of his minutes reduced. It didn't turn out that way. AD was matched up with Jeremy Grant over and over and over on the left block. And he roasted him. He just... Oh, you know, took control of the game in the first quarter for a five minute stretch and kind of struggling to consistently get to the basket and create mismatches and beat those mismatches when he wants to. The Lakers, like Anthony Davis said he'd be okay after a really scary ankle twist. How do the Lakers kind of get him in a better position to succeed? Because he's he's just doing it by himself. And that just kind of worries me. I want to make life easier for Anthony Davis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and recognizing what the defense is doing, who they have on him, and, and what his own tendencies and, and skill set is, it, that's all the nuance you want with this. And the shot making that he showed us in that first quarter was incredible, but not it, it wasn't the most comfortable offense for me because I was like, well, like one, he can get to his spots. Those spots aren't at the rim. He's not, he's not Shaq. Um, so he's kind of getting to these mid-range spots and taking the shots he likes taking, and they were all going in, which won't always be the case. Um, and if we look at his mid-range self-creation, it has spiked in the playoffs compared to the regular season. In the regular season, he was much more of a finisher than a creator. But in the playoffs, since we've seen so much more switching and paint packing and the, those rolls aren't there, the dump-offs aren't there, he's had to be much more of a self-creator, and he's... One, done it a bunch more, and he's been even more effective with it now than he had been in the regular season, which is just awesome to see. But you you want to find easier offense for him. And LA will occasionally throughout the game, they'll run those set plays that get him cutting to the rim or they'll get him off of like a pin down, attacking downhill. Those sorts of things where he can attack a closeout from a big man or he can be catching the ball on the move, heading towards the basket. Those are the times where his length and his finish around the rim can come into play and his ability to, it's not quite stopping on a dime, but he's been, I've, it's really stood out to me this series where someone's ready to take a charge on him and he'll jump, but he'll somehow be able to like stop his momentum almost and not commit that charge and either shoot over you or make a pass. So using using those skills that he has, while knowing that he, if you just kind of let him go against this paint packing, he's probably just going to settle for jumpers. You can get him more going more consistently if you get him setting screens for shooters and then slipping those screens and attacking the rim or having screens set for him by guards in a way that if the defense switches it, there you go, there's a post mismatch. If they don't switch it, he's cutting to the rim. The same way the Lakers ran those plays where he starts at the corner and KCP or Rajon Rondo or whoever comes and sets that screen for him. Those are the types of plays I'd like to see more of that can let him continue to be a finisher rather than needing to create everything for himself. And if he does need to create for himself, they're more likely to generate mismatch situations for him. Because the, the longer he is attacking and we know it's going to be a one-on-one -on -one play, 
and we know Denver then can shift into that paint and do what they want to do, and we know that AD's not the best at making those passing reads, the the less likely LA has of a chance to succeed other than if he just has incredible incredible shot making. So I want to attack quickly with AD. I want it to develop really soon. I don't want to give the defense a chance to load up and then force AD, AD to be a playmaker. Um, forcing him to be a playmaker was one of my pre-series keys for Denver in my written breakdown um, because he's he's a good passer, but he hasn't been good at making these types of passes. And he, among anybody we've seen, has missed more shooters uh, on those flare screens or guys cutting when he's in the post just because he just doesn't seem to have that vision or, or that willingness to make those passes. So trying to shift the types of situations he's attacking from and getting him downhill is, is really what I would want to be doing. Some of those those screens you talked about were really nice. They get Anthony curling, you know, toward the block, and he's got such a great soft touch and qu- jumps quickly. He can jump again to get his own rebound. Those are deadly uh, possessions. But something that I think you'll uh, – something I think Michael Malone probably did was look at the tape and say, Jeremy, you did a great job on defense. You, you stayed in front of him. You got a, you got a hand up. We're going to double Anthony Davis catch now. And something I think that the Lakers don't do a great job at helping Anthony Davis out is sometimes guys like Danny Green, and I think KCP is pretty good at this, but sometimes those guys in the corners don't get there. LeBron, too, they they lag, right? So they'll kind of walk there. They'll kind of kind of strafe over, but it's not. And when they send that double, it kind of clogs up the spacing. So I think just the weak side spacing, making it really clear for Anthony Davis what the read is because you want him. And if you're down three, one, that's what you're going to do, right? That's what we saw the Nuggets. Uh, sorry, the Clippers try to do to, to Jokic when they got desperate. It was just this guy's killing us. Let's get the ball out of his hand and make Danny Green floaters beat us and KCP fly by mid-rangers. You know, maybe we'll give up a couple of lobs off of those rotations to JaVale McGee, but we'll live mm-hmm. with that, right? So be sur- very surprised not to see Malone double AD almost immediately on the catch in game five. Yeah. And part of it is to lower that efficiency. Part of it is because you're not scared of him making those passes. The same way that in the first round, the Lakers would send double teams at Carmelo Anthony, who has like, I think it was like an 18 to one ratio of trying to score from the post compared to passing out of the post for somebody, um, which is just like wild to me. So the Lakers are like, all right, if you don't have any vision and you will not pass, we're going to go send a double team. And then instead of you being like a mediocre post scorer at this point in your career, you're going to look horrendous and you're still not going to pass out. And that's what exactly what happened. Um, so if they can send that help, 80 obviously isn't the, the same guy as Mello, but if it, down 3-1, you need to be more aggressive. They need to try to turn the Lakers over, get running, get into transition, which will draw more fouls, get into the free throw line more. You want to get 80 out of his rhythm because at the end of the day, if you play single coverage against him, he's going to get the shots that he wants from mid-range and you just have to hope that they don't go in. Um, This idea, like you're saying, of of doubling and forcing him to be a passer gets him out of that rhythm. You still have LeBron who hasn't been able to uh, really penetrate with with all that much success. So if you can get LeBron out of his rhythm or get AD out of his rhythm and force him to be a playmaker, this series either ends 4-1 and AD has like eight assists, and we're like, oh my goodness, this guy is the one of the best players in the NBA, maybe the best player, because look at him, he can make all the passes, we saw him score, we saw his defense, yada yada, or 
they push this a couple extra games because they're double down on those tendencies that AD has. And all of a sudden it's, oh, AD's being passive or he's turning the ball over. He can't handle the pressure. Um, but you want to challenge him. You don't want to let him just do what he does. Um, if you're Denver, go after him, send those doubles, make sure those easy passes aren't there and make him either have to pass it to the release valve and then you can recover and LA can attack with four seconds left on the shot clock or he might throw you some interceptions and you go get some run out. So I like that strategy. If I'm Denver, they used it a little bit this game, not a ton, um, but when they have used it this series sparingly, it's been pretty effective just because he's not making the right passes. So I expect to see much more of that next game. All right. So wrapping up here, I think we're going to see uh, Denver just to try and focus on taking away the Lakers rebounding advantage, as we kind of talked about early. We'll see Murray probably continuing to try and exploit these Lakers switches and probably get uh, Jokic in the post a little bit utilize more often because they're still good there especially when they get a switch so i expect a full dose of Jokic murray pick and rolls over and over them screening for each other rescreening because every time they do it once it doesn't work they just do it again and it usually gets them some kind of advantage somewhere so if the lakers defense stays at the level it is right now i think we might have a six game series but if Vogel's able to adjust and kind of maintain winning those Dwight minutes, getting a decent shift out of JaVale, getting some decent three-point shooting. And I think you still focus on is how many of our shots are we getting at the rim? I think if you look at some of those factors early and whether Anthony Davis is turning the ball over out of those doubles, if, you, if we can get an advantage and knock down some shots from other guys, I think this could be a Lakers in five, like I called all along. <laughs> Tim, you remember when we used to bet <laughs> things on this podcast all the time, and I've you never lost. Never lost I, to I you. I don't think I've ever lost. I think this counts. Uh, you've ever lost to me. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> St- just statistical an- anomaly. Never, just never. We've never, you've Lakers, never lost. So Lakers in five, so I guess, still takes that away. Um, uh, I guess so. I said four, so I've I've lost that. Um, yeah, I if they go, I think the things the right things are there for Denver to make the right adjustments. The Lakers use some of the right counters to what Denver was doing, but if if they're not really punished, if Denver's not punished by the Lakers not passing to the open guys from those counters, then you don't have to stop doing what you're doing. And what they can do is keep doubling down on putting pressure on AD, make Le- dare LeBron to make jumpers. Like, ask these guys to do the things they don't want to do and or are not as good at. Um, Jokic in the post, I think we need to see more of it. Um, he only had 10 total post-ups this game where he got the ball. He had 12 last game. His The percentage of those post-ups against mismatches went down this game. Um, but he did score 12 points on nine chances, um, plus one time he had to pass out. Um, he scored both of the times he was against AD. He's uh, had one against Morris, two against Dwight, and then he had five against uh, Laker guards or wings. Um, I mean, go after that a bit more. Let him be a playmaker. Let him be a scorer. Uh, we saw more from from LA this game in terms of using off-ball switches to make sure he didn't get mismatches, or even one time he got the ball and immediately the guard ran to, to go guard the cut, and then I think AD came in and took the spot instead, so they made an on-ball switch on him. Uh, we saw one time where 
LA had switched and he was on a mismatch. And then once he tried to drive by the guard who got in his face when he was facing up, then the big man shifted over, met him at the rim and the guard kind of trailed and then recovered to their own man. So we saw like a switch on a drive. Um, We saw that three quarter high coverage where if, if you're KCP and you don't want to let Jokic just catch the ball with you standing behind him, you get in not fully in front of him, but you try to get, you try to cover three quarters of his body. You try to make it so that if the defense is going to pass the ball to him, they have to pass it, uh, I don't know, uh, to over to his left hand away from the basket. Um, and then what you do is you have your big helping from behind. So if the team does pass it to the only spot you're giving them, you have a guy standing there to take a charge or, or block a shot at the rim. Um, so we've seen, we saw all of those tactics from LA today, or I'm sorry, in, in game four. Uh, probably more in a single game than we had seen in any other single game so far this series. So the Lakers have continued to come to play when it comes to not giving up mismatches to Jokic. But even when he hasn't had mismatches, as long as he's not facing Dwight Howard and to a lesser extent, JaVale McGee, Jokic has been able to score pretty well. So I would get him going at AD if you get if you can get AD in foul trouble because of that. Um, or you can force the Lakers to start doubling down and then getting open shots for Denver that's great offense for them. Like we, we haven't seen the Lakers need to double team him, him in the post for like a game or two. And that is severely hurting Denver's offense. As long as it's a Jamal Murray hit crazy shots, crazy layups, weird falling down one armed jumpers, if you want to call them jumpers and weird floaters, like that's a win for the Laker defense. So if, if that pick and roll game isn't going, isn't working well, go at that Jokic post up game and try to generate something from that because that's, really what the core of this Denver team is and that lets them have the ball in the hands of their best player, their best playmaker, um, and and try to potentially get AD in foul trouble. Because if you can get AD in foul trouble or if AD's ankle really is bothering him and he can't play or he's, or he's not as effective, that is a huge hit to this Laker offense. So I, I expect a couple moves from Denver for the next game. We've covered some of those um, but we've, we've seen them adjust pretty well so far this series. So we'll probably see some of that, or maybe even some more creative tactics from them, maybe some d- zone or something. I don't know, maybe some bowl bowl. Uh, but, um, hmm. I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I like this position for the Lakers. This isn't the same as three, one versus the Clippers or three, one versus, uh, who'd they beat in the first round? The Blazers. Um, the Blazers. Oh, no, 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 Denver, no, not all, Utah. Uh, Denver. Utah, that's right. We're able to adjust with them from a personnel standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, even if it's not the quickest. Um, I, I don't see this team taking three games in a row from us, um, but I, I certainly still think that they're able to get one and maybe push this to a sixth game. Yeah, it'll be exciting to watch. Hopefully Lakers can get a couple days off and for Boston tonight, because of course not, but it would be a nice byproduct to get the Lakers a few days off before uh, giving them that advantage because, you know, washed king and all that. Anyway, we'll talk to you guys next time. Take care. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.